Yes, in Dungeons and Dragons terms, I'm true neutral. Not neutral good, not neutral evil. True neutral. Welcome to this episode of The Comical Heathen. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Chaffee. Welcome to today's episode. It features my interview with Brian Mallow, the science comedian. We're going to get into what is a science comedian, all right? Why, do, why are we going to get into what, in fact, is a science comedian? Because I, your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, am, in fact, writing a book. You're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, writing a book? Why, Jerry, what book are you writing? Well, I've been working on this book for a few years. That's one of these things I'd like to get done someday. And it's a book about religious satire. And I thought it would be interesting to interview some comedians and some writers and some other interesting people for the book. And then, hey, I turned those interviews into recordings and those recordings into this podcast. So I thought some of you might be interested in talking about religious satire, comedy, religion, and, you know, all of the above. Let's see what we got going today. Before I uh, get to my interview, cover some um, housekeeping stuff. Uh, listeners of the show, and I know there's two or three of you, Listeners of the show know that this show has a mascot. Me and my wife keep two uh, Holland Lop rabbits, Calvin and Newton, and I always like to give little updates from the rabbit hutch. Here's something that I noticed about keeping rabbits. If you ever saw Bambi, you know there's a character in there. It's a rabbit called Thumper, and uh, that's one of those things that turns out to be a real thing. Rabbits do thump their feet to communicate with each other. Rabbits can't uh, vocalize. They're not like cats or dogs or great apes or whiny Republicans. They uh, can't vocalize, so uh, they have to communicate other ways. And one of the ways they communicate is by thumping their foot. It lets other rabbits know their location, if there's danger, that they need attention, even kind of like saying hello, although often it means stay away. I had kind of a, a funny thing happen. Our rabbits are called Newton and Calvin. One is Calvin. He's a broken black rabbit. That's a type of coloration, black and white, like an Oreo cookie. He likes to get under the furniture, which you don't want your rabbits under the furniture. It's kind of dangerous. There's nails, there's staples, there's webbing, there's all kinds of stuff under there. So we like to block off our furniture, but uh, he's persistent. Rabbits are persistent. They're smarter than you think, and they can get in there. So every once in a while, if you turn your head or don't pay attention, he'll end up under a piece of furniture. So what's happened recently is I'll walk into the room where he's supposed to be, and I don't see him. And so I'll make a thumping noise. I'll clap my hands and say his name like this. Kelvin. Kelvin, and uh, sure as shooting, when I do that, he thumps back. They'll thump, and then I see, oh, he's under the chair. I'll do it again, clap my hands. Kelvin, little thump, he is under the chairs. Here's the cute part. I'll clap my hands and say, Kelvin, go to your room. And that means go into your cage. And uh, we keep his cage open during the day, you know, so he can hop around. And uh, he knows that go to your room uh, means go to your cage. So. Kelvin, go to your room. And then he'll thump. But he won't come out right away. I got to do it two or three times. Kelvin, go to your room. Thump. Kelvin, go to your room. Thump. And then he crawls out from under the chair and runs over to his cage. So look at that. I am the bunny whisperer. I can talk to rabbits, apparently, by thumping my hands. All right. Another thing about keeping rabbits is that you have to line their cage. And, uh, you know, me and my wife use newspapers sometimes for that. And that has caused this weird side effect of me reading newspapers again, like actual paper newspapers in this internet age. I bet you didn't even know they still make newspapers. Ripping up the papers or putting them into the cage and you notice the headlines. You know, that's what you do. You scan the headlines. And every once in a while, at the bottom of the rabbit hutch, I will come across a headline that is on some topic related to religion or pseudoscience that sort of, uh, you know, gets my dander up. Gets my dander up. And that's what just happened uh, this week. I saw at the bottom of the rabbit cage an article, this was from um, an edition of the Independent UK. This is from April 2019, and the headline actually said, Polish priests burn Harry Potter in protest against witchcraft by lying to Tom Barnes. Yeah, that's right. Polish priests are burning Harry Potter books and some other pop culture items on his big uh, religious bonfire. Their stated reason for this bonfire and for burning the Harry Potter books is that magic is sacrilege. So first off, sure, go for it. Try to nip this Harry Potter thing in the bud before it gets out of hand. 
although kind of like uh, too late. Harry Potter is already the number one selling book in the English language, Catholic priests. I think you should have done this a little while ago if you're actually trying to accomplish something. Um, but I find burning Harry Potter books uh, because they have magic in them odd because the only magic in Harry Potter is J.K. Rowling's enchanting story of a scrappy orphan. Oh, J.K. Rowling, how did you make me fall in love? But as far as actual, like, necromancer, supernatural powers, there is no magic in Harry Potter. It's fiction. It's a collection of made-up stories about fictional characters who use magic. And it seems like these priests are spending a lot of effort getting worked up about a collection of made-up stories about fictional characters with supernatural powers. Now, why does that sound so familiar? (coughs) Bible. (coughs) Bible. Yeah, maybe they don't like the competition, right? The article says that people were praying to end magic, which that doesn't seem fair because I've never heard of magicians casting a spell to try to end praying. And anyway, if prayers really worked, couldn't these Catholic priests just stay home and pray? Why do they need to be be on-site at a book burning to pray in case God can't see them or he can't hear them? You like light a big bonfire, throw a few books in it. Hey, God, over here. Uh, I'm sure he'll find us. I gave him solid directions at the highway. Oh, but just in case, I've asked the good people at Bloomsbury Publishing to provide us with these signal flares, kindling. I mean, why, if prayer works, why do they need to burn any books or have a book burning? It's like abortion protesters that have signs that say, pray to end abortion. If they really believed prayer would work to end abortion, then why are they standing outside clinics harassing people? Can't they just stay home and pray, uh, eat, love, watch Springer, instead of burning the book, eat, pray, love? You know, the reason priests are opposed to magic is because Leviticus warns that witches should be stoned. And just to be clear, not the good stoned, the actual, like, Leviticus death by rock stoning. And not death by the good rock, like death by ACDC, for those about to rock, we salute you. But more of a, for those about to read Harry Potter, we will kill you with rocks and pebbles. Well, you know, maybe not like pebbles, more of a bam-bam. Ha! Bet you didn't see that one coming. This sounds like an ad for a head shop. Come down to Leviticus when you're ready to get stoned, and I mean really stoned. You know, immediately following this performance of Harry Potter and the Pointless Photo Op, the priest could then have a hold the sacrament of the Eucharist. Here, eat this magical cracker as it magically becomes the body of our Lord, and then drink this supernatural grape juice, which through supernatural powers becomes his blood. And God has magically granted me the supernatural powers to make this epic, supernatural, magical event possible. Hey, good thing there wasn't any magic involved. A quick side note, um, does that ceremony remind anyone else of that old children's Halloween game, The Witch's Hair? You know, that's like a Halloween party for little kids and you blindfold the kid and you have them touch food like spaghetti and you call it The Witch's Hair. I mean, you know, it doesn't remind like, ooh, touch this cracker, it's the body of Christ. And this grape juice is the blood of Christ. Oh, don't open your eyes, kids. This beef jerky is Jesus' skin after after being out in the hot sun all day without any suntan lotion. Ooh, and this jello is Jesus' brain. Uh, Father, what's this banana and two plums? Oh, keep your eyes closed. Billy, keep your eyes closed. You don't want to ruin the surprise. Oh, that took a dark turn at the end. Did you know, did you know that Poland also has the world's largest statue of Jesus? Because the Bible strictly forbids magic, but the commandment against graven images can go fuck itself. And why are people in Poland so obsessed with God seeing them? Hey, God, over here, I got a big bonfire and this giant statue. Man, that deity needs some glasses. In Harry Potter, the evil Death Eaters follow a narcissistic and genocidal maniac good wizards call he who must not be named, or as we call him in America, 45. You know, uh, besides Harry Potter books, there were other, like, uh, pop culture things uh, in this bonfire. They were burning Twilight books, which I kind of get. They were burning pink umbrellas, which I kind of don't get. And then after the bonfire, they were going to have an exorcism of a Roomba. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Oh, and these batteries. Look, Catholic priests, I I guess the book burning approach was deemed less labor intensive 
than the original plan of handwriting in. It turns out it was God's love all along on the last page of every copy. Look, uh, Polish priests, there has never, ever, even once, ever been a book burning that was on the right side of history. Not once. You know, check yourself. Think about it for a second. If you're standing at a book burning, you are de facto already wrong. I'm not counting high school math books in that, but I'm just talking about, like, book burnings, you know? But listen, listen, if you insist on burning books, could you at least buy, like, 10,000 copies of my books and burn those? I'm just saying, I got a lot of student loans, and I could use the cash. And that's what I found at the bottom of the rabbit hutch today. And, you know, when I see uh, misinformation, I consider it a sin. And I'm sorry if it's uh, your dogma, but it's my karma. So I got to say something. What I got to say now is uh, the lead into my interview. Uh, If you're sticking around this far into this podcast, you're probably here to hear Brian Mallow, the science comedian. A little bit interesting to me, if you're paying attention, my last two uh, podcast episodes, one was with author A.J. Jacobs, who wrote the book Year of Living Biblically, uh, which we talk about in that. But he does talk about how that book was, at least in part, like a post-September 11th concept, like a pushback against religious fundamentalism. And also, the episode before that was Ian Harris, the skeptic comedian. And he also was like about using rational rationality to push back against pseudoscience and religious uh, extremism. And I mentioned that context a little bit because uh, although Brian Mallow is very, very pro-science, one of the things that comes up in this interview is that he's not like uh, specifically talking about or even bullish about religion or religious satire. He just loves science. So I asked him about that. And I mean, if you know Brian Mallow, a couple of things to let you know. He does do, um, in addition to doing stand-up comedy, He does do communication seminars at science conferences for researchers. He has written for the Neil deGrasse Tyson Star Talk podcast. He's friends with uh, Mr. Tyson. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, We do talk about creationism and other sort of anti-science movements. And because I'm interested in comedy after September 11th, we talk about that a little bit. So, you know, please listen. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I I do want to give you one other thing. I have to uh, give a couple of shout outs here couple of thank yous. First of all, I want to thank the people at the coffee shop Starfish and Coffee in Painesville, Ohio. That's where Brian and I had this conversation. It's uh, only sort of hip local coffee shops, really good coffee, and uh, the owners love Prince. So I don't know if you caught that, but Starfish and Coffee is actually a reference to Prince. They let us do the interview there. They actually turned off the background music, which I really appreciate, and I promised them I'd give their shop a shout-out, so Starfish and Coffee. It's still, though, a coffee shop, so there are some background noises. A couple times they they grind beans, you hear some other voices. Uh, All in all, it's not too distracting. I probably shouldn't even be mentioning it. I do want to mention, too, the reason I was able to spend some time with Brian is that he came to the college where I teach, which is Lake Erie College uh, near Cleveland, and he did some seminars during the day and a comedy show at night, and he was... A big hit on campus, you know, really loved him. And uh, But to bring him to campus, we got some funding uh, from something called the Royce Fund. So I just want to thank the Royce Fund for, you know, making Brian's visit to campus possible. Uh, now, with that in mind, hey, here's my interview with Brian Mallow. Or the artist formerly known as. Yes, uh, the painting formerly known as. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Prince-inspired um, motif for this coffee shop. The voice you're hearing is... Science comedian Brian Mallow. Yes. The reason for the awkward pause is because I have to remind myself that his last name rhymes with shallow. So should you find yourself at home trying yes. to remember Brian's Marsh last Mallow. name. If Mallow. there were two L's, everyone would get it right. But there's only one L. Has this um, curse followed you your entire life? It has. <laughs> Brian get mis- gets misspelled brain. Mm-hmm. And Mallow gets mangled to the extent of like often Marlow. Like, well, they inserted an R in there. Sure. Because <laughs> they didn't know what to do with it. Um, Malo, Malau, Malo. Merlo, Merlo? Merlo only goes with certain meals, so that's... And I go for all meals. Yeah. Brian is here with me because, uh, thankfully, I have to make a shout-out thanks to the Royce Fund for the Performing Arts at Lake Erie College, which has made his visit to Painesville and Lake Erie College Yeah, possible. that check is still in your pocket, not mine, right? Correct. Well, you know that it's... That's why you're doing this interview right now. Exactly. <laughs> you know that if, if the check were in my pocket, I would have no impetus to be funny later. I, have, I still have to yeah. give a science communication talk and then a show, a comedy show. And yeah, it's always a little risky to pay the comedian before the show. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because uh, then it's like, well, I've already been paid. Yes, definitely. You're not as hungry for it. 
How long have you? Uh, that sounds like some real uh, wisdom. How long? Oh yes, I have so much wisdom like that. How long have you been comedyifying? Oh, too long. Um, I was in graduate school in Austin, Texas, right. when I first did the funniest person in Austin contest. And were you the funniest and, person in Austin? And no, not by a long shot. But <laughs> in the first night of prelims, I was one of the three funniest people that night. All right, well done. And I advanced well to done. the, and that was my third time on stage. Okay. So it was surprising. And you know, I, I, it's funny because I do look at that with this new perspective, which is I understand that when there's a funniest person in Austin contest, later I was part of the comedy right. scene there. And so you know most of the people in the contest. But right. then there's always a couple people that just signed up because funniest yeah. person in Austin. Yeah. I'm funny. I should try My that. friends say I'm funny. Well, so I was this total unknown. Right. I had shown up for two open mics. Right. Well, maybe one or two people saw me, but there was nothing much to see. But I came in with a very well-prepared routine my third time for the contest. And I know now what it must have been like to the comics going like, well, where did he come from? Because right. he's not on the scene. Right. And I rocked that night. And then I, a couple weeks later in the finals, right. I tried to repeat the magic. I thought I was so good because yes. I rocked my third time. <laughs> but my fourth time, I learned an important lesson. You can say all the same words. Right. And, and think you're saying, and, 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 and bomb, and turn around like, wow, did you, I did said the same words. In the same order? In the same order. Wow. And, but, but something crucially, just the fact is, I wasn't funny that night. Right. I didn't deliver it well. I was trying to repeat the magic, and my acting chops weren't there, sure. or whatever it took, whatever it was, right. that third time. I was radiating that I was funny, and the fourth time I was not. So just was this the eighties, the nineties? Yeah, late eighties, like right before. Yeah. So the theme of this podcast is religious satire, in support of a book I'm writing on the subject. But before we get into those kinds of themes, I want to know a little bit more about you. Give the audience a chance to know a little bit more about you. Um, Do I want the audience to know about is, me? Is there That's an a audience? Very is, is there, there an, an audience? audience? Okay, there you go. Let's not get too Do I want there. this recorder to know that much about Do I about want the me? other three people in this coffee shop to know that much about me? Do I want there to be a digital file that, this audience, that encodes The this live audience is actually bigger than the at-home <laughs> listening to this podcast audiences. Yeah, that's sad because I can it, it see is, them well, all in I'm one I'm expecting class. to get the Brian Mallow bump, so yeah. make sure you share this with all of your friends. Yeah. What was comedy like in the 80s in Texas? Like, what was that scene like? It's pretty good. Like, so, you know, we've touched on this already. Uh, I started in Austin. Right. Austin is a cool city. Like, cool people in Texas tend to grab it. Right. And art, people that are weird and artistic so tend to gravitate right? towards Austin. Yeah. But there were also some Austin comics that were former Houston comics. You know, the Houston Comedy Workshop had spawned Sam Kinison and Bill Hicks. Yes. And, yeah. and a few other interesting people. And some of those people ended up being Austin comics. Sure. Like some of those old, they were what called the, uh, they had a little group called the Outlaw Comics. Sure. I mean, I saw Hicks perform and I met him a few times. Okay. I, I had one really unique experience. Because I was with this guy, Riley Barber, an old Houston comic, we dropped by Kevin okay. Booth's house. So Kevin, okay. he worked okay. with Hicks mm -hmm. on Hicks's music. Sure. They recorded music and also on video productions. Okay. So Sane Man and there was like Ninja Bachelor Party, I think, was the, <laughs> this funny video they made that was, okay. you know, shot on VHS probably. Low, low, low. Anyway, one time Riley Barber and I, we dropped by Kevin Booth's house where him and Bill Hicks were recording music. Okay. And we sat in for a while until I felt like we should leave because they're... Yeah, they don't want an audience. They're 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 doing yes. a creative project. So in the year 2019, um, that's now. That's now. Your um, brand is the science comedian. Yeah. So how did you end up in it with that uh, persona? It wasn't calculated. It was a very natural evolution. When I eventually came up with that phrase, science comedian, and checked, and sciencecomedian.com was available. Right. I thought that's either a really good sign or a really bad <laughs> sign. Maybe it's useless real estate. When I told an old friend of mine, he was like, we knew you were the science comedian 10 years ago. <laughs> so the thing is, I liked science first. Sure. Science fiction, and then science, and... So and the, so when I became a comedian... In the 90s, were you doing science or science fiction type jokes? Yeah, but... I'll say yes in that it just there was a flavor there sure. that of my sense of humor. It's like if I wrote something that had a punchline that like used some science language or a sure. metaphor from science. I would like notice I would say that my mom would lose weight, my dad would gain weight, 
And when my dad lost weight, my mom gained weight. It was like a conservation of mass within our family. It was yes. funny to me <laughs> to look at things through kind of a science worldview sure. or to apply absurdly. You know, sure. I'm not, I wasn't trying to teach necessarily or anything, but so, well, just like this, absurdly, like this is the language and the voice that I like to write in from the beginning, but not exclusively. Yeah. And then some jokes, this is what I did in nightclubs, very, you know, slightly geeky stuff. Yeah, right. But the, there were some jokes that were like, like too geeky. Sure. And you would do them, they don't really work very well in a nightclub. Right. And so you stop doing them. But then you get the right audience. Like I yes. did a bunch of, had a gig for a bunch of engineers at Apple. Right. And I pulled out every geeky joke well, and he killed. And I realized I have to find that audience. Yes. I was like getting some shows like that and con right. collaborating with, there was a woman in the Bay Area that did funny science songs and she sometimes put on a cabaret and I'd be a comedian there. Sure. And it was this audience that wanted that. And then it, but the big thing was coming up with the phrase science comedian, which so, really like, literally I had never heard that phrase before. I don't know. It popped into my head. I looked for it, found it, and now so I when, use when it when you looked for it and found it, about how long ago was that? I think about 11 years ago. Okay. I think. Okay. Apparently, no one else had looked for it and found sure. it. So then, you know, whatever, each new thing that came along on YouTube, right. Science Comedian, on Twitter, on Instagram, sure. on Facebook. So, so what does it mean to be... Uh, or the, or the science comedian. Yeah, well, here's what it doesn't mean. One time a woman <laughs> asked me, oh, so you teach kids about science using stand-up comedy? And I was like, no, if you're a geek, I'll make you laugh. Very different. But, but the thing is, there is something of the teacher in Hold there. on a second. I just laughed. That may mean I'm a geek. You, <laughs> you made me laugh. You probably are. Just, okay. Um, I feel like I can make non-geeks laugh, too. Okay. Uh, but that might just be a feeling I have. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused with the scientific method. Yes. <laughs> um, you work clean. Like if you're in a bar mm -hmm. and there's bikers staring at you. And you throw the F word into a joke yeah. about your wife or whatever. Like, you can spice it up. Yeah. But if you're like a real dirty comic, you can't unspice it. Like, that's Sometimes just your you joke. Can, yeah. So, can, can you spice up your science <laughs> comedy? You know, I, there's been a couple routines that are more appropriate for a nightclub audience, but mm -hmm. they're geeky. I'm, I'm going to, this isn't entirely true. I'm going to say that maybe I don't have to spice it up. Sure. Yeah, Maybe sure. I can just be funny with this material and make, or whatever material. Because yes, yes. I still have some stuff that's not as geeky as right. other stuff, and some stuff that's not sciencey at all. But you know what? I think before I came up with Science Comedian, I think mm -hmm. I had used a title for a show, Rational Comedy for an Irrational Planet. Sure. So you can hear that it's like, I was always dancing mm -hmm. around like some sciencey right. stuff. I had promo material that said, I'm not science comedian yet, but it would say right. he has more science jokes than the average comedian. And there was a brain because right. Brian gets misspelled brain a yes. lot. And, and so I, I toyed with that kind of stuff. And I did right. some gigs for like Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and South Dakota School of Mines and sure. Technology and Mines. So I knew that I was there. Right. I just didn't have that. It didn't crystallize sure. as something that you can go. Oh, science comedian. That explains it in two sure. words. So, so what is it? What, so what, it's like what are you, science comedian? Uh, well, what do you mean? I'm just a comedian. Like, you don't ask a political comedian what he <laughs> is. It's like, I'm a comedian and my stuff is a little science geeky. And uh, sometimes you could learn a little something, but a lot of times it's just silliness. And, you know, I'd like to think that if someone comes to mm -hmm. a show and they weren't even expecting science comedy, they just came right. to the club, right? that... If all I did is not teach them anything, right. but, but I made them laugh for an hour sure, with material that if they thought science was boring or science sure. was hard or something, and I just made you laugh for an hour with pretty geeky material, sure, and maybe you didn't get every single reference, but right. for the most part, all the jokes are, you know, my girlfriend's right. shorter than me. The first time I saw her, I thought she was farther away than she actually was. Yes. Anyone's going to get that. It almost always works. Right. You know, there's this thing where sometimes people, it sounds cocky to say right. that you know you're funny or a joke is funny, yeah, yeah. but it really isn't. Because after no. a while you go like that joke, I've told right. it a thousand For times. For a comedian, that's more of a works. clinical statement. Yeah. It, it is does. almost a scientific you statement. Know, this yes, joke has tested. proven. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> In the now, laboratory. It doesn't mean it's going to work every time. Yes. But there's nothing you can say to me. You can't convince me that joke isn't funny because I've watched, I've seen it work a right. thousand times. Yes. So I could screw it up. There could be bad time. Yeah. There could be a million. That audience may not laugh at it, but it's funny because it's yes. just, it's proven itself. And so there's this weird object. And there's this other part right. to it too. It's like, where do these jokes come from? 
they pop into your head and and oftentimes it's i'm the first audience for a joke it's like yes. it made me laugh right so i think it's funny because it made me laugh and then i tell it and you mm -hmm. laughed so it's like okay so maybe it's funny so um you did a show in an earlier incarnation called rational irrational or irrational rational comedy for an irrational thing. so that's just to say that i already knew that right. i was working this thing that that was rational Yes. Okay, so I didn't have this phrase science comedian, but a lot of my jokes are very rational. So it's like um, I think that my I, sense of humor has always been very rational, okay. and I feel like my sensibilities are more formed by Isaac Asimov. I did have early comedy yeah, influences. Sure. In my house, we had George Carlin albums. It sure. surprises me a little that my parents, at a young age, I was I had Richard Pryor albums, oh, sure. George Carlin, Mon I had Monty Python albums. What? And George, and I would say George Carlin mm -hmm. was clearly a big influence. Steve Martin albums too. Of course. But I grew up on Isaac Asimov and his science fiction and his science writing. So. And he wrote with personality and he wrote with humor sometimes. And he was very rational. And what are the three laws of robotic comedians? <laughs> um, yeah, okay. we can come up with something. Yeah, we'll come up. We'll Let's call that a rhetorical later. question. Yeah, so rhetorical question. But Asimov, like, is a good segue into other stuff because he's also a famous rational atheist sure. scientist. Well, so you're the writer. science comedian. There's our mutual acquaintance, Ian Harris, the skeptic comedian. Yeah. But I'm just thinking about the, you know, sub, sub, sub genre of comedians that are intentionally aligning themselves with like science, with, with science and rationality, yeah. critical thinking skills. Surely there's some more. So let's assume there are. What's up with that? <laughs> Why is there a, a subgenre movement of comedians that are aligning themselves with science or critical thinking skills? No, it seems pretty natural, though. I mean, of all the science geeks, some of them are going to be funny. And all <laughs> the atheists, some are going to be funny. I do see some connections. I've talked to some Nobel laureates sure. uh, in science about this as well, that um, I see some interesting connections between science and comedy. Okay. Um, a lot of it is about pattern seeking. Sure. And recognizing patterns right. that like, okay, first of all, researchers, like comedians, you don't want to do material that's already been done. Science, uh, you have to do some, your scholarship must right. be new material. Yes. If it's already been done, you're not going to be able to publish. Right. It, it, you need originality and it, you need to see something that no one else has seen before. A lot of times, discoveries aren't about new information, but it's about looking at the information in a different way, like a new paradigm. Yes. And so sometimes it's about seeing a pattern that no one else saw. Hey, this is connected to this. Right. Comedy is very much like that. It's like comedians show it to you in a way that you haven't thought. And then right. you've seen so many laughs are out of recognition mm -hmm. where you're like, oh my God, I know. Yes. But but it took that comedian to point it out or to right. draw these connections. Right. And some are more subtle than others. So there's a little of that. One other thing that's on the other end of things is that so many people have their eye on retirement. It's like, when I reach this age or this many years with the company or the right. state, I can retire. Scientists and artists and comedians and musicians right. don't tend to look at things that way because no. they're doing what they love. And yep. as I said to one scientist, right. If you retire, you'll have more time to do your research, right? Which is what he loves to do. Yes. <laughs> and same with comedians. It's like it's like. Well, first of all, maybe a lot of comedians don't have health care benefits, and they don't. They never, unless they strike it big at some point, they don't. Retirement may not even be yeah. an option. <laughs> but it's not like they're looking to retire. Yeah, I mean, there might be a day when nobody wants to see your right. old. Yeah, what's your retirement plan stage. is to die on a stage in the Upper Peninsula. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that's yeah. my retirement plan. Yeah, I'll go out on a laugh. I hope. Yes. <laughs> So there's a movie can. called um, Flock the movie? of Dodos, a documentary about the evolution debate. Yes. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. One time a long time ago, but yeah. Okay. Well, this has to do with science communication. Mm -hmm. So the film And a guy named Randy Olson, who became, yes. he was a scientist turned filmmaker. Yes. And he's got some books about science communication out and at least one documentary. It's, uh, about, it's primarily focused on the evolution debate as it was playing out in Kansas a few years ago. But in one portion of it, he shows a social event. I think it might have been a poker game of graduate students in evolutionary biology at Harvard playing poker and just talking amongst themselves, but for the filmmakers' benefits as well, about the state of science in our country. But the thing that is remarkable, and I don't know any of these gentlemen, right. and I'm not casting aspersions. And I don't but, remember if I know any of them. But the upshot of which was they were terrible communicators. Compared like, to the anti-science 
people that right. were represented. And so there was a little bit where the flock of dodos metaphor in the film was that like if scientists don't become better communicators, we'll be they extinct. will be the dodos. Yeah. So that just brings us back around to the idea of science communication, especially in this age in which we currently yeah. live. There's a growing awareness that science needs to be communicated better and scientists need to communicate what they do right. better. It hasn't always been that way. And, you know, I got to say that it's not wrong that some people feel... I, I don't want to communicate. I just want to do my research. However, you, however. Know, you do need to raise money and like yes. all this, and we need the science explained. But but not every scientist. I, I'll go. I'm on board with the fact that not every scientist sure. needs to be a brilliant communicator. Not every scientist can be. Right. But a lot of them are, and in fact, I know so many. And nowadays, it's right. really common. There's so many scientists that are that make great use of social media. Right. I have a friend that recently relocated to NC State. Katie Mack is very popular on Twitter. She's got over a quarter million followers. Okay. There are science communicators on YouTube that are popular video sure. bloggers. I'm a fan of Vsauce myself. Shout v out yeah. Michael Vsauce. Vsauce. I, I don't know him, but I, I know, know Veritasium, like Derek his. Muller, yeah. and uh, Minute Physics, Henry Reich, and okay. um, Joe Hansen does uh, It's Okay to Be Smart, which is a PBS okay. web series. And they're all very, you know, these are very successful science communicators. Briefly, or as much as you like, I know you've done some uh, work with Neil deGrasse Tyson, as he's known in popular culture. Mm -hmm. Tell us at least a little bit. What's it like? What kind of work have you done with Neil deGrasse Tyson? What's it like working with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah. So I first randomly got an email from him, and he had seen... Um, some YouTube videos of mine, okay. and he reached out just to say he was very encouraging and just wanted to tell me that he thought I was okay. Fine. Well, there you go. Yeah, and then I was making science videos for Time Magazine, That's and right. when I made an astronomy one, I'd send it to him. <laughs> I kept in touch with him as you would. That, indeed. If you have Neil deGrasse Tyson's email address, that, you, you important, me, important advice, <laughs> young artists and comedians: keep in touch with people. Yeah. So this this guy, you know, I didn't abuse it, but right. but I kept in touch and. And then he invited me to do some pieces for his Star Talk Radio right. show and podcast, and and so though those shows were themed, right. he would send me a theme. Uh, we hadn't actually spoken at this point either. We'd never all we'd done was emailed, right? Um, and hadn't met in person. But he would send me a theme. I'd write a short piece, record it, and email him the MP3. Okay. He'd do an intro and an outro and play the thing in the show. Eventually, um, I. Got to meet him and become friends sure. with him. Yeah. And, and um, here's one thing I have to say about him. He's very gracious. Like when we're out at yes. a restaurant, he's always going to be approached okay. by people. And he's very gracious okay. about it. I've never seen Excellent. him denied, even though we're eating or something. He's totally gracious about sure. it. And then he also, people will sometimes ask him questions. Sure. And he, I've seen him do this thing that I just chalked this down to being a like the educator in him. Sure. Someone will ask him a question, and he doesn't just necessarily spoon-feed the answer. He doesn't just give right. them the answer. Okay. He kind of makes them think about it. So okay. I don't have an ex example, but I've seen someone ask him a question, and maybe it had an assumption in it, and he pointed that out. It's like he right. pointed out that there was kind of an assumption sure. in that question, and like maybe that's not right. a good question. Yes. And and like so he sort of leads them. Right. It's, it's rather than just... You've asked a question. Here's your answer. He leads them to think it through to okay. the answer in, okay. in, in a in a in a cool way. Okay. So I just think that's a little bit about the teacher in him. So for this podcast and the book I'm supposedly writing, the <laughs> the thesis is that there. What kind of effects did September 11 have on comedy? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a working hypothesis, if you will, that there's at least a subgenre of comedians who have like in, intentionally taken on. Whether it's religion in the form of religious satire or critical thinking skills in terms of being pro-science as a reaction to September 11th. So just as a working comedian who was working at the time, do you have a reaction to that suggestion? Like, Does it make sense or would you dispute it or... I'm, I'm not sure. Or do I... The, what, what's the... Like, what, what's the... Why would the critical thinking be a reaction to that? What are you saying? As a way to combat certain type of... Uh, extreme, radical, religious, extremist extreme. thinking? Yes. So you said it better than okay. I. Uh, note to self, write that down when you get home. <laughs> put it in books. Okay. 
I don't know, but I'll, I'll, I, I can tell you what my experience was with it because there was certainly sure. this thing I mean, when the, it happened. Yes. Did it affect There comedy? was this strong, you know, the whole world. I think there were stories going around. Can America laugh? Yes. Can we be funny like right now? Yes. In the midst of this, is yes. it allowable for someone to have yes. a positive moment or a smile or even laugh at something? Yes. I mean, certainly it was scary. It was terrifying. Yeah. Terrorism mm -hmm. was effect achieved. Yeah. Achievement unlocked. Yeah. Um, we People were terrified and horrified and saddened. It was a tragedy. And, you know, shows like, you know, sh TV shows didn't suspended, yeah. you know, Letterman. I don't yeah. know how, how but, but then there was yeah. a thing. It's like, we have to come back from this. This yeah. isn't going to be the new norm. No, yes. we are coming back. Now, for comedians, there was this weird backlash of like, oh, you're a comedian and you're going to get on stage and talk about this? Sure. But, you know, some comedians, not all comedians, but some comedians are social commentators. And it's mm -hmm. like, how can you tell a, a political comedian or a social commentator not to talk about the biggest thing happening in the world right at that moment, yes. certainly in the United States? How do you tell an American right. comedian not to talk about that? And weirdly, everyone else could talk about it. The news could talk yes. about it. The it's there, There's something, and this goes to other topics as well, where sociologists can talk about this, yes. but a comedian, there's this thing where it's like, oh, because you're going to make fun of it, you're going to mock it. There's this idea that comedy is a defense mechanism, yes. and, and certainly it can be. Yes. Certainly some comedy distances yes. you from things. It, instead of embracing it fully, you make cheap jokes, and yes. it gets in the way of really embracing a topic. So some, yes, that exists. But right. you know what also exists? Right. In the form of Bill Hicks and many other comedians sure. is comedy that's actually offensive, not, not offensive like I'm offended, right. but it's on the offense. Right. It attacks a subject and goes to the heart of it. It's not pulling this shield yes. up. It is embracing right. the topic on the deepest level, going to the core of it. And it's simultaneously funny, but right. also hits you, right. like reveals something. And I think that that you don't hear that talked about as much. Comedy can really, right. they, there's, a, there's a famous quotation about, I think it could be somebody like Oscar Wilde, that it's like, okay. if you're going to tell someone the truth, make them laugh or else okay. they'll, or they'll kill you. Right. <laughs> and and, and there's so, I mean, it's been recognized, but I just think that that's, sure, they were offensive right. and racist sure. jokes and cheap jokes right. about the terrorists or, or about people from that part of the world. Yes. Sure, there are bad comics and making cheap jokes that were offensive. But there were also people like Bill Maher and like would have been like the people that we sometimes think, ah, if Bill Hicks was only here for yes. this, what would he have had to say right. about it? And it wouldn't have been cheap. It would have been interesting. Yes. And so... My dad was like, couldn't believe that I was going to go on stage and talk about this. And it's like, well, what do you think I'm going to talk about? Right. So I wasn't really a political comedian. Okay. And only a sometimes social commentator. Okay. But I think that I wrote what at the time I thought was some of my favorite stuff because it was very real. And right. you know what? I had two main topics. Okay. That, that I wrote material right. on. And one was the media coverage. Okay. Which I found offensive yes. because it turned this tragedy into good television. You yep. know, the coverage would have a theme song. There was a yep. theme song on CNN and there were titles. And I forget now, like America yeah, Attack, yeah. then America Rises and America Strikes Back. Yep. It was this evolving program with, I, I, think I, the, I found that very disturbing. And it has never recovered. Yeah. I think the 24-hour news cycle now, whether Fox or MSNBC, yeah. just the format is has in the shadow of that event yeah i'd love to see like yeah. before and after like what it re really yeah. was but so i thought i liked what i had to say and i thought that was a pretty valid target yes. i'm not i didn't talk bad about the troops right. i didn't talk bad ab about the terrorists exactly right. Right. um okay so i was disturbed bothered by the media coverage and i wrote some material that i really still sure. look back fondly with i don't remember it that well right, right. now the other thing is that all tied up with my 9-11 experience right. is the fact that on August 24th, just a couple weeks before, my mom right. had a stroke. Okay. So I came from San Francisco to Houston, and I was in Houston okay. on September 11th okay. when it hit. Then, you know, I don't know how long the flights were suspended after 9-11, right. sure. but 
I was, it's like I had to get back to San Francisco already. I'd been there since the 24th or 25th of August. And so as soon as the flights resumed, I right. flew. Okay. And flying for the first time <laughs> when airplanes had been yes. involved in this, it was a very mm. nerve wracking experience. Right. So I had a long story that involved all these parts of my experience traveling right, right. after and looking at dark complected people a little different. But yes. but I wasn't mocking them. In in my material, I had these fears that I voiced yes. and suspicions, but in the like in the material, yes. I turn out to be wrong and yes. I'm the butt of the jokes. Yes. It's really exploring these fears and I don't think there's anything racist in it. I don't I mean like someone could argue that, but I think what it yeah. was was Look, here was my experience flying, and I was scared, and yes. I was wrong to be scared of that guy. Yes. And here's another guy on the phone speaking Spanish. I'm not worried about him because he speaks Spanish. Right. Like they couldn't learn Spanish. Right. Like, like just foolish. <laughs> so I'm like kind of mocking my right. logic at the time, my sure. own ra my own irrational thinking. Sure. Despite that, get on stage, even though I feel that this material is inoffensive. There were some people that no, like they don't even want to hear. It. You go anywhere near the yes. subject. I have a, a, an old yep. friend who is kind of religious, and he would sometimes, he'd mention Jesus in his act, and people immediately get guarded and offended, and they're not hearing him out. He's right. religious. His joke, he's not making fun. Right. He's on their side, yes. but they hear the word Jesus coming out of a comedian's mouth, and they're like, whoa, 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 what are you? Right. And But it's like, hear him out. Right. He's a Christian, okay? Right. <laughs> he's a Christian. Let him say the word Jesus and just think, yes, yes. he's a comedian. So yeah. so I did find that it's like no matter what, that there were audiences that are like, they didn't know no, this is inappropriate. That I didn't come to a comedy. Maybe they came to a comedy club for escape. Sure. And they don't even want to be reminded of this. Sure. That's a part that you can maybe sympathize with. Do you have any sense, including feel free to disagree, as to whether or not there is... I totally disagree. You're probably right. <laughs> Good night, ladies and gentlemen. I can't get behind this at all. That there might... I've lost respect for you. Yeah. Well, join the rest of humanity. You were the last... But the surprise is that I had respect yeah, for you. Yeah, you were the last holdout. Is there, perhaps, just an increase in the amount of religious satire since September 11th? I don't know. If there is... I mean, is it because of that? Correct. Yeah, or is it just a natural trend? I mean, there always has been, all the way back to Lenny Bruce. Right. And, and probably a thousand years before that. Oh, well, the, um, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but, the, um, the ancient Greeks did religious satire. Yeah. So Shakespeare did religious satire. It's a standard type of comedy. You know, there's a quotation I love. I saw this in a book, and it astounded me. It has the word master in it. It's mm -hmm. someone speaking to his teacher, mm -hmm. master. Yes. Shall I crack any of those old jokes, master, at which the audience never fails to laugh? <laughs> Aristophanes, 405 B.C. Right. What, that, that just astounds me because he's asking, should I go for the easy jokes? That, right. And you know they're the same jokes. They're yes. the dick jokes yes. and they're fart jokes and they're bodily. They are the simple, easy jokes that 2,400 years ago were already old, old and hacky, easy, hacky and easy jokes. jokes. Yeah. And you'd like to think that we are so different from people in the 50s, the yeah. 1950s. Yeah. But here is an indication that 2,000 years ago, yeah. people were right. just like us. Like, right. like that the internal landscape was surprisingly similar. Right. Well, there's definitely, and again, it might be like data points of one. Yeah. But there are definitely specific comedians who became more bulldogish on religious satire. Like Bill Maher? Bill Maher is probably the prime example. Yeah. There are He others. lost a show over a joke about the terrorists that was ridiculous that, yeah. that, that he stated a fact he said he's like was that people were calling terrorists cowards mm -hmm. and all he said is like he was saying that he had nothing positive to say about them. No. He's just saying, you can say all these negative things about him, but they flew a plane. You know, it's like, yeah. coward. It's like, it's just, that's beside the point. That coward yes. isn't the right word. All these other insults, evil. Yes. It's like, he wasn't arguing that they no. were bad. He was just like, but don't call them cowards. And if that's I remember word. correctly, Bush had said something similar. Oh, that they that they were not cowards. How funny! And, because they flew, and Bush didn't lose his job. Yeah, <laughs> no. so that's hardly fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the comedians held to a yeah. higher standard than the president is. So who? So Bill Maher. Well, a couple of other and... examples, prominent examples would be Eddie Izzard. Mm -hmm. Eddie Izzard was on stage in like 2005, 2006, doing jokes about science, which he does. Yep, jokes and about history. In interviews since, and he said he was sort of agnostic-ish, and then on stage he decided he was an atheist. Like it just hit him, like his own jokes convinced yeah. him 
And then Ricky Gervais, probably. Uh-huh. Ricky Gervais is almost a new atheist, like some people would describe Dawkins and Hitchens. Yeah. Gervais in that camp. So there's definitely some specific comedians yeah. who, post-September 11th, felt like it was important to take religion down a notch, attacking hypocrites or yeah. promoting rational thought. or So there's definitely yeah. at least a little something there. Yeah, it's the question there. is I how can't... much of a something. Yeah, and I just don't have anything to add to like, any kind of observation about trends. But well, that yes. certainly existed, but it also existed before. Right. I don't know. I don't even know how we would measure right. it. Well, well, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the way to frame it would be to say, post-September 11th, people who intentionally... In that switched field. gears and yeah. rose up to this topic. Yeah, I mean, Louis Black did the first Comedy Central Presents Half Hour Special after September okay. 11th. And if you want to talk about somebody who went on the offensive yeah. in a way that Louis Black can do, it's a very interesting example. Like, he had to address the topic almost. Didn't one of Rich, uh, one of George Carlin's HBO yes. specials yeah. was recorded right in the wake of 9-11 yes. and maybe it's in new york maybe it's yeah. jamming in new york i'm not sure yeah, yeah. what no. year i don't i don't know but I've one of his specials that one i can't remember I think, the title of it but that, yeah that, yes. that it was shortly they, after right? they had to remove some material and he had to address it the event yeah it might be my single least favorite george carlin routine yeah and the, the reason is which well when i say that i'm referring to not the whole special. Yeah. But at the very beginning, he addressed that September 11th had very recently occurred. Okay. And that material hit me with a wooden stick for even trying to judge George Carlin's material. Right. I'm not qualified to. Do you to. remember what, what's the gist of it? Yes, I, I do remember, remember what the what gist of it? it is. I think, that, first of all, the problem is that he didn't have time to work on it. Like right. He it was, was known fresh. to like work for months right. and years developing material. Yeah, his stuff was very This had crafted. just happened, and something had to be said. He says, um, everyone who was alive at the time will remember... For, there was a window where Giuliani was a hero, and he actually does this whole little like pro-Giuliani rant, like yeah. put Giuliani in charge and we'll solve all these problems. I mean, we felt and that so compared to Bush, we were like that yeah. was a common. And perception. so there, there may be a degree to which it's dated. Yeah, like maybe when he said it, it was like a home run. <laughs> yeah. But in 2019, you hear it him saying, like "No, it. that doesn't yeah. seem like the right." Answer. What happened to that guy? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Is there anyone who you think right now does satire well? Hmm. Like any comedians or writers that you appreciate for their commentary or satire? I think probably Stephen Colbert is probably... Oh, Colbert and John Oliver. Sure. Um, which we're not talking... John Oliver right. was a stand-up comic. Colbert... Was not... I don't know what he was, but both of them are hilarious. And, and you know, I mean, of course they have writers on their show and all, but they are both right. very funny on very serious topics. Right. Yeah. Colbert is pretty much since Trump's election made every single opening monologue about. And Jim Jeffries... Uh, Jim Jeffries is in my, will be included in my book. Yeah. Mark Maron's very funny and is probably yeah. often, you know, has addressed serious social sure. topics yeah, and, yeah. I mean, and sort of psychology, internal, like personal psychology, yeah. sort of. As the science communicator, mm -hmm. I just want to ask you one more question. And actually, Mark Maron's a good segue. He has Mark a, Maron has been reduced to a segue. Correct. <laughs> and we mean the scooter. Yes. On his album... This has to be funny. He has a routine about visiting the Creation Museum. Okay. Oh, I haven't heard that. Oh, well, first of all, uh, stop listening <laughs> to this podcast and, and go home that. and listen okay. to that. I think it's on YouTube, but you should buy his album and listen to it properly. There's actually a whole cross-section of comedians before and after September 11th who have done bits about creationists. Mm -hmm. Christopher Hitchens, not a comedian, right. but, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can see on YouTube that are these debates oh, yes. about, in, in England, right. about whether the church has been a force for good or not, yes. and him and Stephen Fry oh, yes. versus some yeah. vicars and things, and, yes. oh, I mean, Stephen Fry is brilliant, and yes. Hitchens was vicious and amazing. I don't think he could be beaten in a debate. No, and you can also... And funny, but vicious. All right, Brian, we are... And Sam Harris. But wait, did you... Okay. What was your point about... I was going to see about whether or not you had any comments about using comedy to deconstruct creationism. Uh, I did have one little line <laughs> that I used to like about, uh, not only do I not think creationism should be taught in schools, mm -hmm. I don't even think it should be taught in church. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like, you know, like you can, so right. I realized at a certain point that I don't care if someone mm -hmm. believes in God, really, right. yeah. but if they're young earth creationists, that, that's problematic sure. to me because like just that rejects too much science. Yes. You can, there are, there are yes. religious scientists who 
they maybe believe in a higher power, believe yes. in a God. They might be Spiritual Christian. The guy zone. that's the head yeah. of uh, Francis Collins yes. is the head of the National Institutes of Health. Yes. And prominently of Christian scientists. Yes. And I have a friend that's a director of the Vatican Observatory, right. Brother Guy Consumano. I don't care if someone just believes in God, but they accept the fact that the Earth is four and a half billion years old right. and the universe is almost 14 billion years old. Right. But if you're a young Earth creationist, you are so clearly denying so much science yes. that that's absurd and that's yeah. unacceptable. Yeah. So that is, that, that's a line that that's too far, but I'm not as adamant as Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins. Do you do about, any uh, this thing about evolution or creationism in your own act? You know, not quite as like aggressively and but you know that's the thing. You know, my sense of humor isn't as aggressive as that. Like I would say that I don't attack sacred cows like that right. so much. I'm, you know, sure. I sell somehow celebrate science and silliness and i find I, I like i love mm. wordplay but that's not you learned early on that that you can only do so much of that on stage right that, but i have a kind of silliness and i think that i some i might bring some interesting topics that you don't hear discussed and and i'd like to think that i'm doing something that you haven't heard exactly right. i'm not attacking the church maybe i'm not a satirist like that okay. i guess well, Brian... Is that a sad note to end on? The, the non-satirist. <laughs> we'll end our conversation. We have some events to attend. And then afterwards, we'll find some sacred cows we can attack together. <laughs> Sounds like a All deal. right. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Well, this is Jerry back. That was Brian Mallow. What do you think? We know how to pronounce his name now, right? That's a thing. Uh, that's something we could uh, bond over. I get my name mispronounced all the time. Hey, I really enjoyed that. If you're a geek, he'll make you laugh. That should be on a shirt if it's not already. Rational comedy for an irrational planet. I like it. I enjoyed his stories. I enjoyed his take on, like, we talked about religion a little bit, and just generally, like, religion is not a factor for him. He's more just talking about science. He just loves science, and um, I can relate to that. We can relate to that here at the Comical Heathen. Hey, let me know what you think. You know, we have an email. Uh, we have um, all the platforms we're on, like iTunes and Stitchers. You can rate us. You can leave comments. Uh, please let us know what you think. Hey, if you ever see a really fun or outrageous newspaper, magazine, website, article about some religious theme you think it might be fun to rant about, forward that to me. And if you have any um, guests, comedians, writers that do satire, religious satire, I love recommendations. And um, so rate us on Stitcher, rate us on iTunes, send us messages. And also let me just throw out a couple of last thank yous. Thank you, Brian, for coming and doing this interview, coming to campus. I want to thank my friend Jeff Geddert. He, he uh, advises me on the sound engineering and recording and mixing. Also helps me with the writing, contributing some writing notes and some jokes and things like that. So thank you, Jeff. Oh, that uh, wonderful organ music you hear, that's my friend Mark Bell. And also he is playing a Skinner organ, which is found on the campus of Lake Erie College. So I'll throw in another Lake Erie College shout out since that's the theme of today's episode. Great job, Mark. Uh, you can get his CD of organ music. Uh, we love Mark. And also, hey, you guys, thank you. You've made it all the way to the end. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You know, please share, please recommend, please give me feedback, and uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>